0: Good morning everyone, so thankful for this opportunity to be with God's people in the house of the Lord as we sit under the authority of his holy word. In Matthew 25, as Jesus speaks the words of affirmation, talking about the rewards that will come for faithful believers, he uses words that ring like poetry in the ears of those who belong to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. There's a lot to be said about this pithy promise, and we will do so when we get to that section in Matthew in due course. But I want to begin with a question this morning that prepares us for our passage for today What makes for a faithful servant? Well, the short answer is one who takes Jesus at his word and who does it, who obeys the Lord as the Lord and walks in his ways in fellowship and in intimacy with him. And we'll see such an example of this this morning as we take a second look at this passage that we began last week, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. As we saw last week, this passage represents a high point in the apostles' understanding concerning the person and ministry of Jesus. In response to the question, who do you say that I am, Peter gives a moment, a statement of high Christology, and receives commendation from the Lord. The the screen is not on in the back, if I could get it there. This took place, you recall, in front of a stark reminder of evil at Caesarea Philippi, where it represented all that was evil, all that opposed the ways of God, all that was wrapped up in fleshly desires, human passions, political government, the forces of evil. And yet it was in that place where there was this great confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And as Peter makes this proper confession of faith, he hears these heartwarming words from the Lord Jesus Christ. I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I said last week, because of the depth and importance of this passage and the promise that was given to Peter, it would be good for us to take a second look, a deeper look, to understand what is happening here in the formation of the New Testament church. And so we ask the Lord to continue to guide and teach us as his word is open to us that we might grow in our understanding of who the Lord is. And so... I invite you again, if you are able, in honor of God, as we read his word, to hear what he has to say in Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Please let's stand. And the holy word of God says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God given to his people for their edification to understand how he would have us live today. Let us receive it for its proper intention. Please be seated. And please join me as we pray. Father. As we gather now and as we hear your word, we know that unless you are working in our hearts and moving us to put distractions to the side and to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll simply just pass time. But Father, we want to know that we have met with you this morning, and so we ask you to work in our hearts and minds as only you can by your spirit to give understanding and insight into your word. We commit ourselves to you now, Father, asking for your direction in Jesus' name. Now I need to tell you up front that we're going to do something a little differently in this sermon this morning than what we normally do. We're going to take a few moments to look at some things that are in this passage and then I'm telling you right now you need to have your Bibles open, whether on your device or a physical copy of God's word, and we're going to move quickly through a series of different texts that I think shed light on the text that we have this morning. We want to see the storyline as it unfolds very briefly and how to understand what's going on here in Matthew 16. But we begin with our first major point, Peter, the rock, and the church. Peter is the one who responds to the question posed by Jesus. We saw that last week. Peter is often the one who speaks first. He's often seen as the spokesman of the apostles. And in fact, in every listing that we have of the apostles, his name always appears first. He was the one willing to try things, willing to take the risk, willing to say things, but he was also the one who often messed up, often because he was a little too quick to speak and was a little too sure of his own abilities. And so he was prone to stumbling, but he was also willing to keep on trying. He was willing to keep on running after the Lord. And so Peter often did what we can all do and what we need to do when we stumble, just run back to Jesus and let him make it right, and then keep on going. So as Peter confessed this great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We looked at this in detail last week, what this verse means. Jesus affirms to him that this confession did not come from himself, did not come from Peter. It was something that was revealed to him by the Father. Peter could not have known this or understood this unless it had been given to him from above. And so he gives him this blessing. Then we get to this famous wordplay, a pun. And it's clear in the original language. You are Peter, literally rock. His name is Petros, it means rock. There's another word for stone, lithos, but that's not the word that's used here. It's Petros. So literally, you are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now notice, it's Jesus who builds the church. But he says he will do it in and through those who call upon him and who confess the truth and who walk with him. He's the head of the church, Jesus is. He's in control of the church. But he clearly is saying something here to and about Peter. He says, first of all, blessed are you. You've been revealed something by the Father. And we're going to continue to refine and define that as we move through the scriptures. But let's let the text speak first and then we'll add to it so we get a fuller understanding. If we start out with the premise that this was revealed to him by the Father then we don't have to get too worried about letting it play out in space and time. We can trust the Father with the results. This confession of faith, as we've said, of Peter, was not as a result of anything of Peter, not by his own effort. He wasn't more intelligent. He wasn't more insightful. He wasn't more spiritual. This was something that was given to him by the Father. It's of divine origin, and as he is properly confessing then, he is rock. As one commentator says, Peter is himself rock in the sense that he is the first to identify fully and completely Jesus as Messiah. And that's what we'll look at today. The rest of the story will make it clear what is meant and what we affirm and what we do not affirm. We, what we do not affirm is that this was somehow a promise to Peter to be the first pope or to be the sole foundation of the church. Neither Matthew nor any of the New Testament writers know of such a claim. Nor do they know anything about the supposed supremacy of the Bishop of Rome. That is a human creation that came later in church history. The foundation is the truth of Christ, who builds his church on those who confess that truth and live for the truth. And as Peter confesses the truth, truth in Christ, who is the cornerstone then Peter, as it will, is part of the foundation that Jesus will use to build the church. But if he doesn't, he becomes a stumbling stone and is prone to discipline from the Lord. And so to summarize, we looked at two passages last week. I encourage you just to put them in your notes uh, to, to study later that just simply affirm that God has used the prophets and the apostles to establish the truth, which is what we have here. But Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one upon which it is all built. He is the head of the church. He's the ruler of the church, the church which is a spiritual temple over which he is the head. So all that by way of kind of catching up with what we looked at last week, we want to look at this phrase now, Peter, and the keys to the kingdom. God, as we see from beginning to end in the story, enjoys working in and through his people for the accomplishment of his will. He doesn't need to. There's nothing that's lacking in the Almighty that would require him to use created beings to accomplish his will. But he desires to work in and through his people to see that his will is performed. And he delights to do so. He gains glory from working through the church. He gains glory from working through the servants that he has raised up. But it's always going to be by his direction and his strength for his eternal purposes, for his glory. But as Jesus is interacting with Peter in this special occasion, he says something unique. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And we said last week, as we looked at the verse, it was second person singular, you. There's an interaction that is going on between Peter and Jesus that is unique. It's not to say that we can't use other scripture to understand what's going on, but let that hang right there as it is that Peter has confessed You are the Christ. Jesus has said, you are, in some sense, rock. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, we understand just in our daily use that keys are used to open and to close and to bind and to loose. And in biblical uses, keys refer to authority and responsibility, And this responsibility involves instruction, it involves discipline, it involves teaching, it involves guiding. But there was a need for there to be this type of guiding and instructing and teaching going on in the early church. As Charles Spurgeon says, for for practical purposes, the people of God would need discipline and the power to receive, refuse, retain, or exclude members. The keys involved at some level letting in or keeping out, teaching or correcting or disciplining. Now, I want to affirm something I said last week. This does not mean that we tell those old silly jokes about Peter standing at the gates of heaven or at the pearly gates deciding who gets in and who doesn't. That is not what this means. But there is something specific that is going on in the formation and development of the New Testament church, and we'll see that play out. And we'll see the limitations then of letting in or letting out or keeping in or keeping out or correcting or discipling as we see the second half of this verse which says, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we asked the question last week, does that mean that heaven follows earth's lead? And we said no. This is a unique grammatical expression in the original language. It's what's called a paraphrastic future, And it would be best translated something like this. And whatever you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. Earth is simply reflecting what has already been decided in heaven. Earth follows the lead of heaven. It does not lead heaven. So, Peter's been given the keys. What does that mean? And can we find anything as we look at the rest of the New Testament? And now we'll begin to trace Peter and the keys if in fact this is the meaning and we see it in the practice in the early church we should find it in the gospels we should find it in the book of acts and so we're going to look very quickly and dramatically as we move through now quickly and this is where your bible should be open your fingers should be flexible we're going to start moving from page to page because i want to be able to lay this out in a short period of time what it means that peter was given the keys Well, first, we look at what happened to Peter in a very sad and dramatic way. He denied Jesus. He puffed himself up and said, well, even if everyone else denies you, I will not deny you. And, of course, he did three times. He misunderstood who Jesus really was. He misunderstood the timing of the Messiah and what he would actually do at his his first coming. He showed a lack of courage when the Savior was put on trial. But after the resurrection... Jesus appears to Peter. Peter is remorseful. He's repentant. He's broken over his lack of faith in the moment of trial. And Jesus restores him to a position of authority, to a position of responsibility. We see that in John chapter 20. He tells him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And so in some way, Peter had a unique role to play, and he fulfilled it under the inspiration or direction of the Holy Spirit and it's fulfilled right in the pages of the New Testament and so there's no need for us to go outside of the Bible to some council of men or some commentary or some later decision to find out how did Peter fulfill this role but we will see that he was given a unique role but for a short period of time it was not intended to be something that would be ongoing and unique to him and so With that, let's turn to Acts 1. And we're not going to be able to do a deep dive into any of these passages. We're going to fly at 30,000 feet, getting the general gist of what is happening as we see how God directed and used Peter in light of the promise that was given to him that he would have the keys. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are in the upper room after the resurrection. Jesus has already ascended back to the Father, he has the believers gathered there, and he tells them to wait until they receive the promise of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this time, Peter has been restored to leadership by Jesus, and we see that as he repented, there was great forgiveness. Peter didn't waste time in remorse or in self-salvation or in trying to practice penance or atonement. No, he just went to Christ, and once he had experienced forgiveness from Christ, he was set free. He would be not perfect, because his point was not to be perfect, but to be used as an instrument in the hands of God. And in chapter 1, as we get towards the end, it's Peter, who is the leader, who stands up and explains the word of God to, the, to those gathered, how prophecy had to be fulfilled in the betrayal of Judas of Iscariot, who had betrayed Jesus. And he gives instruction and leadership to the early church to lead, them to, to lead the church to replace Judas with Matthias. All of this happening under the direction and providence of the Lord. Peter is starting to exercise the keys or the authority of keys that he's been given. He's the leader that is teaching, instructing, guiding the early church at this point. Let's move to Acts chapter 2. We're going to do a lot this morning of what's called narrative preaching we're just going to tell stories and not going to be able to move verse by verse because we will never get the job done if we do that in acts chapter 2 the first 41 verses show us the dramatic effect or the dramatic events of the day of pentecost which is the birth of the new testament church as the disciples are gathered on that important feast the holy spirit falls on the church And all of the apostles are present, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and they start speaking in languages that they did not know. And those languages that they did not know, but now they are speaking publicly, are proclaiming the truth of God and are used for the edification of the church. These were real human languages that they used. It was languages that they did not previously know, but now are being used to teach and to preach to those that have gathered for this important Jewish festival, Pentecost. Jews have gathered from across the Roman Empire to be in Jerusalem on this important date, and they hear the glories of God and the preaching of the gospel from the lips of the apostles. And they're amazed. How are we hearing these things? We know these men don't speak our languages, and yet here they are, gifted by the Holy Spirit, speaking, and they are able to hear and understand. They're so confused, they even accuse them of something untoward. But in verse 14, it is Peter who stands and raises his voice above the crowd and begins to preach the gospel, showing how Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that have been given of old concerning Jesus Christ, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead being the greatest proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And as these people hear about the gospel, they hear of how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given through the Psalms and through the prophets and in the law, they are convicted of their sin. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And in response, Peter tells them what they are to do. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Show your repentance and faith by being baptized, identifying with Jesus as Lord and Savior in a public way. And as people believe the message and repented, They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit himself, given to all who believe. And so at this point, I'm going to take a little bit of a tour, and we're going to look at the difference between the gift of the Spirit and the gifts, plural, of the Spirit. As we put together the theology of the New Testament, the gift of the Spirit is the Spirit himself, who is given to all believers at the moment of conversion. He indwells every believer at the moment that they believe. The Holy Spirit seals them in Christ, indwells within the believer, fills him with power, brings him into the body of Christ. It is that gift of the Spirit coming into a person's life that makes him a Christian and makes him a part of the church, the body of Christ, uniting the believers with Christ. And so everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has received that gift because the Holy Spirit, at the moment they believe, coming and dwells within them. And that's what is received henceforth from this date in Acts chapter 2 until now. The gifts, however, plural, of the Spirit are those abilities, empowerments, talents given by the Holy Spirit of God to believers so that they use those talents and abilities to build up the church to promote unity in the church, discipleship in the church, that they use to serve one another. And all of these gifts given by the divine sovereign control of the Holy Spirit himself are to be used for the purposes of God in building up the church. And so we see the difference then between the gift, which all receive, who is the Holy Spirit, and the gifts, which we all receive, which are different, and we need to use them together to build up the church. But let's get back. We're talking after all about Peter this morning. So what is Peter doing here? And what Peter is doing is using the keys that he has been given because he is the chosen instrument of God to declare the gospel to the Jews who upon repenting and believing enter the kingdom of heaven. So Peter is used then in this initial stage to open up the kingdom of heaven to the Jews. And in this, two promises come together. One, that the gospel must be preached to the Jews first. And that goes all the way back to, to whom the promises have been given first, and then the promises must be fulfilled to the Jew first, Paul says, and then to the Gentile. That's the first promise. But the second one is that Peter would be given the keys to open them up. And so at that point, Peter preaches the gospel. Many Jews believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit affirms that they are in Christ by falling upon them and bringing them into the body of Christ. Now, but Acts 3 and 4. Remember, the keys have been given to open up the gospel and to exercise discipline. In Acts 3 and 4, we have Peter and John having confrontations with the Jewish leaders. Maybe one day we'll have a chance to walk through this wonderful book. But Peter and John are being faithful and preaching the gospel. And one day, they're on their way to the temple to pray. And as they come to the temple to pray, they come across a man who is lame. And because he's lame he can't enter into the fellowship of the saints he can't go into the temple and so he's there to beg to try to make a living any way he can and in acts chapter 3 peter responds and says i have no silver and gold but what i do have i give to you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise up and walk and so the man does rise up and he walks and what does he do he goes into the temple And so we have a symbol here of healing physically and spiritually coming together, and it's Peter who has pronounced that the gospel has come forth, and based upon this man's confession of faith, he also enters into the temple. Well, this draws a crowd. and So Peter begins to preach the gospel to the crowd. They're not used to seeing a healed man walking and leaping and praising God. They're not used to someone else preaching the gospel in the temple square. What is going on? So the Jewish leaders gather, and they want to punish Peter and John. And in fact, they're putting them on trial, and they want to put them in jail. And there's a whole much more you can read there, but look at Peter's response in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Peter is the one who responds against these religious leaders who are trying to keep him from preaching. And he says... This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. For there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now notice the language. Peter understands who is the cornerstone, who is the one upon whom the church is built, that salvation is found in the name of Christ alone. Peter proclaims the truth because he has been given the mandate by Jesus to do so. He proclaims Jesus as the cornerstone. And the leaders say that there say, we don't want you preaching the gospel, you're just causing disturbances. And Peter, along with John, says, we must obey God rather than men. Get ready, friends. In the days in which we live, the pressure is going to come upon us more and more to just go along with the flow, to go along with the latest sociological discovery. So gird your mind already. We must obey God rather than men. There's a T-shirt that I hope to get one day. It says, "I would rather stand with God and be judged by men and stand with men and be judged by God. We must obey God rather than men. Well let's move on to Acts chapter five. So Peter here is opening up the keys. He's preaching the gospel. It's starting to go out to Jews, but what's another responsibility of the keys to exercise discipline? And so in Acts chapter five, there's sin in the church. Ananias and Sapphira have lied about the level of their generosity. They want people to think, wow, look how generous they are. Well, they're holding back part of it for their own gain. They desire the praise of men more than the praise of God. And it's Peter who is used of God to use his authority with the keys to exercise discipline. And in response to this treacherous sin that's taking place in the church, he is the one that pronounces the sentence, which in this case is death. The keys of the kingdom are being used to open up salvation to many, but also to give proper instruction about those who mishandle God's truth. But in this initial phase, the gospel is being, of the kingdom of heaven is being opened up to the Jews. Now, I want you to write in your margins of your notes at this point Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 tells us how the church is going to expand. The promise of the Holy Spirit is that he will come upon all and the church will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see that happening as we go through the book of Acts. So initially in this initial phase, the gospel is going forth to the Jews and who was the first one that was used to preach it to them? Peter, for he'd been given the keys to open the kingdom of heaven. In contrast to the Pharisees, in chapter 23 of Matthew, who were rebuked for closing the kingdom. Now we get to Acts 8. Church had been called to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, but they kind of got comfortable hanging around in Jerusalem. And so they're staying there. And so God says, okay, I'm going to make them leave. And he brings persecution to the church in Jerusalem, which scatters them. And he uses a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, but there's more to that later. So some of the men do leave Jerusalem. They flee the persecution that was there. And as they're on the way, as you see this story, they, some of them go to Samaria, primarily Philip. And he begins to preach the gospel. So now this is where the tension would start to build in the story because the Jews did not like the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a result of when the nation of Israel, the northern nation of Israel, had been carried into exile, they began to intermix and intermarry with their captors. And so they were considered a type of half breed, half Jews, if you will. And from that time forward, the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans in Samaria had different paths that they followed. This happened started began to start happening in about eight BC. The Pharisees and the scribes for their part saw the Samaritans as unclean and not really Jews. But God is pushing this story forward because the gospel is available to all to be preached to all, including those who are considered half-breeds. So we see that as a result of Philip's preaching in chapter 8, many Samaritans believe. But what would happen with the true believers in Jerusalem when they hear that these Samaritans, these... Half Jews had believed, they would be reticent to accept them. And so, who is sent to confirm that the gospel has come? It's Peter, along with John, to confirm what is happening among the, Sam- the Samaritans. They interact with them, they confirm that indeed it is the same gospel that has come to them of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them as a public sign that they are now to be included and identified with those who are also in Christ in Jerusalem. This is a very public display of the Spirit doing what the Spirit does, which unifies the people of Christ into one body. And so it is that the Samaritans now are being enfolded into the body of Christ, just as the Jews had in Jerusalem before that. The keys of the kingdom are used by Peter to be the first to confirm that the gospel has come to the Samaritans. The Holy Spirit affirms it by filling the Samaritans, who now, every time someone amongst the Samaritans believes in Jesus Christ, at the moment of their conversion, they have the Holy Spirit, the gift, just like everybody does. Peter is no longer needed, we notice, because after this trip, at least I can find no other mention of Peter serving in Samaria in the New Testament. So he has used the keys as the one that Jesus appoints to be the first to confirm that the gospel has arrived in Samaria. But he will also use the keys in a different way in Samaria. Remember? Opening and closing, teaching and instructing, and bringing discipline. Well, in chapter 8, there was a man, Simon, who was a magician who used illusion, hand tricks to try to fool the people that he had some great power, and He wants to use that power. And so in verse 19, Simon says, Give me this power also so that anyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want to have this power. I'll pay for it. I want to be able to control what God is doing. I think this is really cool, how this will add to my act as an illusionist, as a magician. Peter's really impressed, isn't he? Verse 20 may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money literally friends peter says to hell with you and your money you're standing on the thought the thinking of That which opposes God, you're not thinking at all according to the ways of God. This is demonic, it's fleshly. Salvation is a free gift offered to all and the Spirit is given freely to all who believe. How dare you think you can buy it and use it for your own gain? Now, to be sure, Peter and John were not the only ones that preached the gospel in Samaria, but they were the ones chosen by God to confirm that the gospel had indeed come to Samaria. Peter, as the holder of the keys, shows that the kingdom of heaven is now open to Samaria, just as it was now open to Jerusalem and Judea. And we're seeing Acts 1-8 start to be fulfilled as the story fulfills. Peter is fulfilling his role. So now we have the gospel spreading among the Jews, both in Jerusalem and in the countryside. It's spreading among the Samaritans. Now in the meantime, a certain Saul of Tarsus gets converted, the one who had persecuted the church, now gets converted, and soon he will be sent out by the church to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Before that happens, however, God will use Peter one more time to confirm something that is happening in the expansion of the church as the, as the one who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And for that, we turn to Acts 10. In Acts 10, we have a Roman centurion, a military man, who's called a God-fearer. That means he followed generally the teachings of of the Jews, of the Torah, except he didn't fully convert because he didn't follow all the prescriptions of circumcision. But he was called a godly man. And God is orchestrating things so that this godly man Cornelius and Simon, Peter, both have a vision. Simon has a vision that a man named Peter is going to come and is going to tell you the ways of God. And then Peter has a similar vision, far more dramatic, with far more details, where God reminds Peter that he is God of the Gentiles too. And that what Peter had considered unclean before was not to be called clean anymore because God was making it clean. God is preparing Peter to, be, to go and bring the gospel to the Gentiles in this new covenant community that is expanding. Now in Acts chapter 10, it tells us that Peter was perplexed by this vision. I mean, three times the blanket comes down and all kinds of creepy crawlers are on there and things that were considered unclean under the law and God says, hey, have a banquet. And he says, I can't, I can't eat any of that stuff. God says, don't call unclean what I've made clean. He's preparing Peter for his next task in carrying the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And so Peter obeys And then we have this dramatic scene where when Peter encounters Cornelius, Cornelius wants to fall down and give him reverence, and Peter says, stand up, I'm also a man. There'll be no kissing of the ring around Peter. He understands who he is. He understands that he is just simply a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's learning. He says he begins to preach. God shows no favoritism but makes the gospel available to all kinds of men in all kinds of places and all kinds of times and all kinds of situations. And so Peter preaches the gospel to those that are gathered in Cornelius' house. Now, what I find especially humorous here is it's almost like a subtle sign that God's reminding us that it's all about him, that he is in charge. Peter doesn't even get to the end of his sermon and the Holy Spirit comes down. And the same things that had happened among the Samaritans are happening among... The Gentiles, the Holy Spirit affirming that now the kingdom of heaven has been opened up to the Gentiles, to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So these believers are baptized, the Holy Spirit giving public testimony that they are now included into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells them just as he has indwelled the Samaritans, just as he indwells the Jews at the moment they believe. And in fact, in Acts chapter 11, Peter says that the gospel has now come to the Gentiles and God has performed the same things that we saw when he did it among the Jews and the church rejoices it says God be praised for he has granted that repentance should come even to the Gentiles so what do we have we have that the Holy Spirit using Peter has brought the gospel to the Jews has brought the gospel to the Samaritans But the gospel to the Gentiles. He's used the keys of the kingdom to be that voice, that instrument through which God would speak and affirm that this is God's gospel. And his role now is complete. Because he fades now off the pages of the New Testament. He's no longer the primary person that is used as the church is advancing and going forward. That will now switch to Paul, who will concentrate on the Gentiles. But did the early church recognize this, that Peter's role was now fading? Well, quickly we want to look at Acts 15. Peter has been miraculously delivered from prison in Acts chapter 12, but now there's this gathering in Acts chapter 15, this great church council, the council of Jerusalem. They have to have this discussion because, after all, those that come from a Gentile background and those that come from a Jewish background, how are they able to have fellowship together? How can they sit at the table and have meals together when they come from such diverse backgrounds? And it's not Peter that is leading the discussion. Now it is James who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem as they talk about how Christians from various backgrounds can live in harmony with each other. Now look at Peter's testimony in chapter 15, verse 7. Brothers, well, and beginning in verse... And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he recognizes that I was chosen to to bring the news to the Gentiles, but he's no longer the leader here in the church. That's now actually James. Moreover, when Peter gives his testimony, he defers now to Paul and to Barnabas who are explaining what they have experienced among the Gentiles. And then James is the one who stands up and says, man, this is what we're going to do. The leadership mantle has passed from Peter and is now being held by James and by the others. So Peter has played his role. He understood his role. And now others are stepping up into their role. So Peter does some things well. But he doesn't get it all right. In fact, next week, when we get to the next passage in Matthew 16, we're going to see that his understanding still needs to grow. That there's some problems. Peter actually, at times, had to be challenged, and in Galatians chapter 2, is actually challenged by Paul, saying, Peter, you stepped out of line. You're not standing on the gospel. And so you have one apostle confronting another. So, Peter your rock and on this rock I will build my church as long as Peter is faithful to the Lord he will be used of the Lord but if he stumbles discipline will come and that's what we see happening in the life of Peter but each time that he falls he gets back up and goes to Jesus he's a good example that he's just a servant and we're all just servants as Christ builds his church but we can follow Peter in this way One, we can confess Christ truthfully. But two, because we're made of the same feet of clay of Peter, when we stumble and fall, we can get up and go back to Jesus. And let's do that. The forgiveness is already there. The gospel has already made provision. We don't need to wrestle with God over whether we've sinned or not. We just go along and say, yes, Lord. And we get up and we keep walking with him. How did Peter see himself? How did he see Christ? Well, he served the Lord for over 35 years. And most of it was in obscurity according to the New Testament. But towards the end of his life, he writes two letters. The first he writes to believers who are scattered, who are being persecuted by the authorities of Rome. And he says, stand firm. Considered a privilege to suffer for Christ. He's learning. He's made some mistakes along the way. But he says it's a privilege to be a Christian and to suffer. Stand firm. He also exhorts the elders and said, look, shepherd the people well. He was told to feed the sheep. He wants to help others feed the sheep. He's got a pastoral heart. And then he writes a second letter where he says, but there's going to be false prophets. And they're going to cause a lot of damage. And in 2 Peter, we have some of the most picturesque images of judgment that there are in the New Testament. But Peter ends with this. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's learned, he's fallen down, he's gotten up, he's learned, and his last words are, continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does that mean in light of Matthew 16? Well, I think Peter, as he gives his own testimony in 1 Peter 2 and in 1 Peter 5, he clearly understands his role was one of a living stone built on the cornerstone who is Christ and that this church is this temple of living stones of which we are all part if we are in Christ. Peter never claimed a role of supremacy nor a position of ongoing privilege. He just simply said, let's be living stones who are precious and chosen and called, and let's live for the Lord Jesus Christ as this temple is being built, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. Okay, that was a quick jog, but we got to finish. We see that Peter fulfilled his role that was promised to him by Jesus. He had the keys. He used the keys. He now knows that it's not just for him anymore. And that's where we see the next point the church and the keys today. All of us who are in Christ have a role to play. In Christ, we have all received the Spirit of God at conversion. We've all been given spiritual gifts of God that we're to use for service in the church. By the grace of God, Peter fulfilled his role. He did it well while he was faithfully obeying God and making good decisions. May we be graced to do the same. And we can do the same as we confess Christ and obey him because we are privileged today to have the complete revelation of God that we need for life and godliness. We have the words of God given through the prophets and the apostles that is inerrant, It is sufficient, it is authoritative, it is truthful, it's full of divine authority. It is sufficient to help us to grow into Christian maturity and discipleship. And that authority then that Peter was given initially in Matthew 16, like I said, didn't remain with him. By the time the story moves forward, we get to Matthew 18, we get to John 20. It's now been given to all of the apostles And because we stand today as the church on the apostolic faith once delivered for all the saints, that authority has been given to us today as well to pronounce those forgiven who confess faith in Jesus Christ, to bind people in their sins who do not confess faith in Jesus Christ because they've not been set free from heaven, and then to discipline and instruct and encourage the church to grow in holiness. So as the church stands on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ as a cornerstone, the church will stand. That's the promise that we have. Christ will never fail his people. And so as we think by way of, of application, a conclusion and application, let's quickly consider a few more points. We are all called to build a church because the church belongs to Christ. And we need to say that to ourselves every day. The church belongs to Christ. The church is not mine. The church is not his. The church is not yours. The church is not ours. It belongs to Christ. We're just these simple servants that he works through to accomplish the work that he has. And we're called to then protect the church by preaching the truth. We are surrounded by truths. We are surrounded by language. It doesn't even make any sense if we try to put it all together. Well, she gave her truth. Okay, but truth requires a foundation. And if the foundation is faulty, it doesn't matter what she says or what he says. Truth is truth whether I believe it or not. And truth will stand whether I stand on it or not, but it's better if I do stand on it because that means I will stand and I want to stand on Christ. We preach the gospel without compromise. We don't apologize for telling people they must repent and believe. We don't apologize for saying we are born sinners and in hostility against God. We don't apologize that Jesus Christ commands us to repent and believe. Because as Jesus, as Paul, as Peter said, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, salvation is found in no one else. But there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Dr. Joseph Stoll tells the story of the ancient Greek Olympic Games. And they had one race that was unique. The winner was not the runner who finished first. The winner was one who finished with his torch still lit. Friends, I want to run all the way with my flame still lit for the glory of God. And it's that type of commitment from each of us as we bow before the Lord is what God will use to build the church. Let that be your desire, to keep your torch lit all the way till the end. Well, next week we will continue, Lord willing, in Matthew 16, but let's look at a few application points before we close. And I thank you for putting your sneakers on and running with me through the scriptures this morning. But because Jesus is the head of the church, we will lay aside personal gain and serve him with our lives. Peter modeled that in his good moments. And we can do that as well. Secondly, because we each have a role to play in growing the church, we ask the Lord to strengthen us to serve him, And others well. Enjoy your role. Serve well in your role. Grow in your role. Profit in your role in the sense that it's helping the church grow in maturity and Christian growth. Because it is Christ's church, we ask Him to keep us from doing anything that harms His church or hurts His people. And that's a need that all of us have to pray every day because we fight against junk that goes on in our own hearts. And we have to go to the Lord and say, Father, it's your church. Forgive me. Father, it's your work. Forgive me. And work to go along with and to work with and alongside of what is happening because it's his church. And lastly, because the church will prevail in Christ, we will stand firm because of Christ. He will cause us to stand. It is him that is the one who who is upholding us. He is the one that is building the church. He is the one that will receive the church as a great inheritance one day. We are his bride, and he's calling us to keep our torch lit as we walk humbly before him day by day. Let us pray. Now, Lord, we pause and we reflect and we think of... we are in Christ and Father we're sorry that we've not fulfilled our roles at times and we thank you for the lavish forgiveness that is in Christ Father we ask you to open our eyes to see how your word unfolds and to rejoice in it and to reveal to us how you would have us serve you best and that you would strengthen us to stand firm in this day and to love and serve others well. Father, I thank you that as we see examples in the early church of men and women risking their lives going out into their communities to preach the gospel, it was with great effect. And in our days, Father, would you give us that same strength and resolve to just joyfully go out and preach the gospel without shame, without compromise, knowing that It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is causing us to stand. And then, Father, fill us with hope, with the assurance not only that you're with us, but that your purposes will endure and your church will stand. And then cause us to stand firmly on you, on your truth, and on your word. Father, we commit ourselves to you this morning anew and afresh because we need you We ask you to fill us with your spirit afresh and send us out this week to be your spokesmen and women with the truth that is shown through Jesus Christ. To that end, Father, we pray, and for the glory of our Savior, in whose precious name we offer ourselves to you.